0: I'm Brandon Dawson, and this is The Distiller, a podcast about how we find meaningful work and how we find meaning in the work we do. My guest for this episode is Yemi Oyederan. Yemi is a filmmaker, programmer, and code writer, musician, drum teacher, and increasingly, a researcher and music historian. I'd met Yemi only once, briefly, before we sat down together, and I had prepared a list of questions that centered on filmmaking and his new documentary project about the history of Cincinnati's legendary King Records, but... As you'll hear, Yemi is a man of very diverse interests, and our conversation went way outside of just those projects. Yemi and I met midday on a Friday at the Littlefield, a quaint art-lined craft cocktail, bourbon, and beer bar in Northside, Cincinnati, where Joe, Drew, and the Littlefield team made us right at home. We talked about his career path, his heritage, and his motivations. And yes, we talked about the truly amazing Queen City Kings documentary series he's currently in the middle of. If you don't live in Cincinnati, chances are you probably know nothing about the King Records story. And even if you do live in Cincinnati, you probably don't know it like Yemi knows it. But to get there, first, we're going to talk about how a Nigerian-American computer geek even gets interested in music in the first place buckle in for a wide-ranging conversation with a truly inspiring and engaging guy. Here is my conversation with Yemi Oyetoron on The Distiller. Well, cool. Thanks for coming out, man. I I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. I know you're a guy who does a who does a bunch of different stuff. And so we're yeah. going to get into all that and we're going to talk <laughs> about all that stuff and I'm I'm interested to sort of like figure out how to talk about I'm really excited about to talk about the King Records work that you've been doing and the research and all of that, but all within the context of what you do and sort of how you how you classify your work. So, if somebody comes up to you on the street and says, "What do
1: you what do you do for a living?", what's what's the answer you give them? Uh, well, I usually tell them. Uh, I mean, what I do for a living is I write software. Okay. Um, but yeah, I also do other things for a living, which is kind of a strange thing in. Midwestern town. Midwesterners are usually stuck to people doing one thing and doing one thing alone. And forever. And, and forever. Un- un-
0: unerringly, yeah.
1: Yeah, you know, I I believe with human lifespans, um, being as long as they are in our generation as we know it now, um you have to look at life in multiple careers. You right. can't look at a single career to la- I mean can you imagine trying to do the same thing for 60 years? I'd no. shoot myself in the head.
0: No, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, my dad my dad was a nuclear engineer and he worked for basically the same company. It got bought by multiple companies or he worked at the same site and different contractors came in, but he did the same effectively the same job, you know, for 50 Years.
1: yeah I can't I can't imagine that which I mean I would love that actually I would love to have the same job for well that 50 certainty, years
0: that security yeah yeah but I
1: want to do other things as well and right. I'd like for my life to be full with you know in humanist education uh, we aim to be well-rounded so mm-hmm. our high school education is really focused on all of this breadth of education. And then the minute you get out of high school, you're expected to centralize to one thing. Specialize. And that just seems so, what a waste of 13 years of my time. Yeah. Of getting me to have these well-rounded skills to allow me to do all of these things. And then I'm not allowed to do or find different ways of using them or connecting them. It's just a very... Right. So I just, I couldn't help myself. And I was broke for most of my 20s. Uh-huh. So, you know, like I babysat well into like my mid-20s. Yeah. I so I just, I taught French well into my, right on. you know, like, You do what, got what needs to be done. Yeah, so from doing that, like, I just kept doing these things just because, you know, yep. of hunger. <laughs> yeah, no, I, you're, you're talking my language because this is, honestly,
0: this is why I want to do the show. Why I started the show is because I've never been able to come back. Ma- Come up with the single thing that I wanted to do for all of my life I want to do every time I meet somebody and I find out what they do. I'm like, man, I wish I could spend a couple of years doing that. I, I wish I could like get in and learn what you do and and so I've had a lot of careers over over my life, and I love to talk to people about how they make the choices they make and what they do so there's some stuff that you do that I'm super excited to talk yeah. about, but let's talk for a second about the stuff that you do. That, that just pays the bills. You
1: work you work for the government. You write software. Yeah. Okay. Um, or I work in the government. It's a better way of an apt description. All right. Um, yeah. And, yeah, I write software. It's kind of my first obsession in life. Um, okay. And it's continued to be my obsession. It's kind of a strange thing. Um, my father introduced me to computing, I think, when I was nine. All right. And... I stayed up all night, and— How did he do that? Because I had,
0: like, an old TI computer, you know, like the first—like, what was the introduction to computing? Uh,
1: So my—he came home with—he would come home with different parts every couple of days. Right on. Um, And this was kind of leading up to Christmas. It was my Christmas present was a new computer. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. And so every part that would come, what's that? And (laughs) I'd have to go run to the library and read about every ounce of that part. Oh, wow. Um, you know, the chipsets and sort of okay, because I mean you're just sitting and you're looking at this and you don't know what it is completely, but you know this is gonna be super freaking cool. Right. Um and so I'd like write down like the chips and try to see if I could identify the chips and um as each part came, I just eventually learned how to put the whole thing together. So when we got all of the parts we stayed up put it together and then how cool install the uh, installed MS-DOS I think like MS-DOS uh-huh. 3 or 4 <laughs> um it was uh um uh, x86 a uh, 386 um yeah that's really cool it was yeah it was I my next one after that was a 486 dx then after that I uh, had a Pentium 60 uh huh a compact. I yeah, love this and stuff. like these are just, words
0: I haven't heard forever. Like, I know, man. Six like, and Pentium. And- yeah, I mean,
1: this was my. Gen- I got super into that stuff. You know, yeah. like I ran OS2 Warp. Uh huh. You know, I, so you learned to program DOS originally, and yeah, you were I, writing yeah. code. And <laughs> I mean, I really, I, I have a problem of immediately obsessing. So by the time I was like twelve, um, I. Was hanging out with a lot of IT professionals and software developers. My father worked for NASA or uh, okay. owned a contracting company right. that uh, did work with NASA and with GE and some other with uh, yeah. av- aviation. And mm-hmm. so I also had a lot of access to a lot of nerds and a lot of professors or PhDs. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I started writing some pretty like looking back, some pretty <laughs> intense programs really early. You know. Uh-huh. Like, one of my first programs I wrote was identifying palindrome streams. Wow. Yeah, like, who's doing that when you're, like, 12? Like, that's, but that's great. <laughs> I mean, you were
0: kind of deep nerd territory, but, like, really good stuff. Yeah,
1: really fast. That's um, really cool. Spent a lot of time on uh, uh, bolts and board systems, uh-huh. BBSs back yep. in the day. That yep. was just, like, my obsession. <laughs> wow. Yeah.
0: 14, so. 14, 4 baud modems yeah. and dial-up tones s- and...
1: And it's still my obsession. I'm still obsessing on all of that stuff. Uh, Yeah. And yet, uh, you are a musician. Yeah.
0: And a drummer and a filmmaker. And you have, people might not think of those as creative pursuits. I actually think of that as intensely creative pursuits.
1: But there's these different parts of your brain that you're using. They're not, actually. It's kind of the thing... I. That most people I think don't realize is that it's the same process hmm. the same process of creating a film is the same process of pushing an application to production.
0: Yep.
1: Um, the steps are similar as well, um, if you're looking at it from the eleventh floor, you know, yeah, yeah, it, it, they're just Lego pieces that you're putting together, and uh-huh. it's the making yeah it's, to, it's there's nothing, and
0: now there's something, and how do I put the pieces together to make a thing
1: yep and same thing works in creating a song and yep um or approaching an interpretation of a song. It's the same process, or at least I organized them exceptionally similarly
0: yeah yeah when did when did music come into your life? Computing came in nine
1: ten eleven twelve so uh the same it was So I started playing, that's funny, I started playing the drums that school year. So that would have been August. Okay. Uh, And I believe in September of that year, I got my, oh, October. It was like the first week of October, like October 9th or something that I got my snare drum. And then that fall, um, early December, we moved from, we were living in Alabama. My family was living in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. My mm-hmm. father was a professor at the University of Alabama. Okay. And decided to start a venture in the Cleveland area. Um, and then we moved to the Cleveland area, I believe, that winter or something like that. Okay.
0: Picked up, moved the family, started a new company. Yeah. Right on. And you started over.
1: And, and Yeah, and that's when the computing kind of, it was just kind of hand in hand. Okay.
0: And is the, I mean, it's not surprising the drumming... Of all the musical arts seems to me something like, you know, there's there's forgive me for oversimplifying, but there's, you know, there's counting. There's yeah. like there's a <laughs> there's a there's a rhythmic numerical element into it. Uh I can draw some direct lines between computing and drumming as a form of music to get into. Did the paths parallel themselves? Was that sort of through school? Was it N- no. music
1: and uh, computing? Um I uh, <laughs> I was a very energetic young person. And music was uh, an avenue, at least my teachers felt, for me to find focus, as was martial arts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I spent uh, a very, most of my youth actually was spent on martial arts. It's actually mm-hmm. the thing that I'm more familiar with than anything. Really? Yeah. What, <laughs> what forms, what disciplines? Uh, my primary form was, um, well, or my primary styles that I studied were first Shotokan um, and Ishinru uh, and shonru, um which are three Japanese styles of karate. And then from there, uh, I studied other styles because um, I got into competition, and mm-hmm. as I do with everything, I took it too far and obsessed about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Yeah, and so martial arts and the drums were actually more of the parallels to try to find ways of um, getting me to focus on things. And because school, I didn't find academics very early. I didn't find it to be very interesting, which is really funny because later in my academic career, I found it to be also too interesting and hyper-focused on that. But... um, I struggled to kind of figure out what I wanted, what was interesting in school. So it was just a kind of, my parents were looking for ways to spark interest. Yeah. And so I think my parents forced me to find something in like the community program, like athletic things. And so I, found, I really liked Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And my dad said, you have to pick something that you can't quit until huh. high school. And so I set a goal. I was going to learn all of the weapons of the Teenage Mutant cool. Ninja Turtles, and off I went.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. Do you
1: still practice? Uh, I don't. I broke my back when I was 16 and had to take a year off. How? Doing martial arts or something? Yeah, I had to take a year off or two years off from competition, from the competition circuit. Uh, or I was 17. I can't remember what I was. Um, okay. And in that year is when I started Spending more time on the drums. Okay. So uh, funny enough, I have an obsession with drums, uh, like the <laughs> instrument itself. And that was the year I bought my uh, my baby, my drum set, mm-hmm. and which I actually found. A cl- I've been searching forever. I found another one. I've always had this fear that something's going to happen to my drum set. Uh-huh. I've, I've been what looking. is it? What's the kit? It's a, the drum set? It's yeah. a Yamaha 9000. Um, and it's this like really special weird version of the the Yamaha Nine Thousand is the uh, what became the Yamaha Recording Custom, which is the most recorded drum set in okay. history. Mm-hmm. They had this weird the first couple early years of the run, when they were deciding what they were going to do before it ultimately yeah. became what it was. Yeah. Um, they did a couple. They just they had one configuration change, and the. Density of the wood uh-huh. um, and how they did things to the wood. So one, they did a wrap finish. It's the only year, like like two years, they only did a wrap finish. And I bought it for my drum teacher for like a really cheap price. He was he hadn't played it for years and was just sitting in his basement. Um, Not knowing how special it He knew how it special was. it was, but he also had, like, four other, like, special drums. Right. It's kind of hes this. the—I'm in the same situation <laughs> um, And, yeah, so he sold it to me, and uh, I broke—I hurt myself in— I was doing a track season, a taekwondo season, and a karate season. Uh-huh. Like, all kind of, like, intersected at the same time, Um they all had very different schedules, but this was just like the small window when they were at the same time. And I believe that I just spent too much time on mm-hmm. just working out. And so I hurt myself um, and just needed to figure out something. I was going crazy. I needed to figure out something to do. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so I just spent the most of that time just on that drum set, like right just on. prepping the drum set, cleaning the drum set. Yeah. Uh, playing and hitting it, um, and it just eventually just kind of turned into this, that just completely diverted my path of what cool. ended up being my ultimate, you know, uh, focus was. I believe there's, um, who's the local guitarist? Adrian. Um, Fetters, Rob Fetters, not Rob Fetters, Adrian uh, Ballou. Adrian Ballou. Yep. Uh, kind of had the same thing, because Adrian Ballou was a drummer. Oh, I didn't know and, that about him. I'm yeah. going to see
0: him at the Ludlow
1: Garage here in like a month and a half. Oh, nice. Yeah. He uh, broke his back and I believe it was, I think mean, he also broke his back and was laid up and couldn't do anything and just started to learn how to play the guitar. Yeah. And from just kind of the nature of being laid up, because you're laid up for a long time right, and right. You're, it's limited motion of what you can do, that he... Started if he just turned into a free guitarist in that process, which he is. There's yeah. so many of those stories about people that had
0: like childhood illnesses or injuries or whatever that forced them to slow down and focus on like the only thing they could do, and right. that's why they became masters. Yeah, crazy. Uh, so, you're how old were you when you broke your back? Uh, I think that was 17 or 16. Okay, so you're finishing high school pretty soon, yeah. and right at that crucial point. Your focus is directed, and you're gonna you're gonna play the drums.
1: What, yeah, what did I mean, you I do? had been playing the drums, right. but, no, but it just wasn't like real one thing
0: in my life yet. What did that do to your decisions about like what you're gonna do after high school and the potential for college and the other things, you know, computing and martial arts? And well,
1: I mean, I it changed what my options were for school because mm-hmm. um, I. Wanted. I definitely knew I wanted to study engineering. Um, mm-hmm. I knew that since I was nine. Um, but I was, this caveat now had to be added to my search of a place that also had a good music school. Right on. And yeah, there was a bunch of schools I was looking at, and Cincinnati at the time fit the bill perfectly. It had okay. a great music school and a great engineering program. Yep and it was also really cheap and affordable. So that kind of uh, steered that direction. There were some other schools that I think were also really good fits. that maybe looking back, I probably should have considered a little strongly, stronger, but um, yeah, at the time it seemed like a place where I could kind of settle and cool. kind of think things through. And it so turned to out UC? to be, yeah, it turned out to be great. Right on. Studied at CCM. Did you get the engineering degree? Yeah, I got the engineering degree. um, And I tried to become a full time CCM student at one point. Um, But yeah, like that's kind of the weird thing is that I never, I have a deep passion for mathematics, Hmm. a lot deeper than, because people, music is this very, um, romant- people romanticize music you yeah. know it's this thing that people are like oh my god you, if you could do that for like your life and yeah how could you ever want to do anything but that right yeah, and yeah, yeah. to yeah. me the amount of joy and pleasure and entertainment that I get from making music or performing I equally, sometimes even more, get from sitting in a room with another nerd and, like, reading a research paper and going over the proof and cussing each other out. And, like, that, to me, is equally entertaining.
0: Right, (laughs) <laughs> right on. I love that. For people that don't know, we're talking about CCM. It's the College Conservatory of Music at the University of Cincinnati, which yeah, is this,
1: one of the best music schools in the right,
0: world. Really, really great place to, to study. It's, it's amazing. We started this discussion off talking about like the, what academia does in terms of making you want to specialize, which is sort of one of my axes to grind against it. This is great because it's like you're essentially saying, oh, I want to do all the things that I want to do and I want to follow my interests and follow my passions. And you've done that. And it's funny because you've been pretty visible in Cincinnati for the last year because your company Afrosheen has created this documentary series about King records. And I I, I certainly coming into this, I'm prepping for the interview. I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to be asking you all of these questions about just music, but this is so much better because I find that like, this is a one facet of the of the stone that makes up who you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which which I love. Yeah. So so uh, and I want to give some time to that project because it's a neat project. But I want to I want to talk about your life and how that develops. So um, you graduate with the engineering degree. You pursue that path as your professional path, and then I assume you're you're still playing a
1: lot, playing in bands. Yeah. Um There was a couple years where I wasn't playing out. Um, But yeah, I've more or less been playing out in Cincinnati since I've been here. I left, I moved for a couple years, I came back. Um, But yeah, music has kind of always been an easy way to feed myself. Mm it's a skill set that I've been really blessed to have because it's applicable uh, anywhere. And I've been able to use it everywhere that I've been as a quick way, immediately plug into some musicians, find yep. a gig. And from there, it buys me time to be able to find whatever else I need. Right. Um, and... yeah, Yeah, I mean, it's... Yeah, it's an important. It's just, yeah, I, I lost my train of thought. No, that's all right. <laughs>
0: but it sounds like it's been it's been important to you not to be uh, forced, you know, not to be pigeonholed, not to only let the coding side of yourself, even though they're the same person, but but let that take over and let that take away other pursuits.
1: Yeah, I mean, I also really your- had to uh, fight hard for it. That's kind of another thing that. Having a you know come, I'm from a Nigerian family and Nigerian Nigerian parents aren't keen on you know it's kind of like if you've ever, you ever see shows on the USA Network there's like
0: <laughs> sure I have three one.
1: jobs on the USA Network you can be a lawyer right you can be some kind of doctor or nurse yeah. yeah. Um, what else? Or you can be a, some kind of police officer. But these investigator. are the acceptable professions. Or, I forgot. For, I'm sorry, a spy. That's right. the other one. <laughs> you know, right. that's like it on USA Network. Those are your four possible jobs you're going to have. For yeah. Nigerians, it's you're some kind of doctor, uh-huh. uh, medical or uh, some kind of engineer. Yeah. And because these are the
0: stable professions that an that an immigrant family wants for their child to basically but, say, I mean, yeah, that's yeah.
1: pretty much the only not even those are the only professions you're allowed to, to participate in, hmm. um, because those are the those are the job sectors that were openly willing and only interested in talent, right? Because they're just so talent deprived, right? Right. Um, that it, it's those are the only places where race. Yeah. Accent, religion, none of that matters. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, wanting a future where your child can determine their own path, yeah, as they were able to, uh, is something that they acutely understood coming mm. to America. Right on. And wanting your children to follow those paths is something that they push very hard. So, you know, when I I come from a really big and well known musical family in Nigeria, um. Uh, so there's a guitarist, a famous guitarist by the name of Sonny Ade, King Sunny Ade. He's like the Elvis of Nigerian music, hmm. of Yoruba music particularly. Uh, if uh, Are you familiar with high life or juju music? Those are the styles of music no, uh, deeply, yeah. that I grew up with. And so my uncle, one of my uncles was the, his producer for 20 years, keyboard player and producer for 20 years. Uh, another uncle of mine. Is the was the music producer for the Nigerian equivalents of NBC? Uh huh. He did all the music, and uh, mm-hmm. funny enough, the ending transition, ending transmission song for the channel was uh, the uh, what's the name of it? It's the Hearts of Fire. What's the running the 80s running chariots, movie? Of fire. chariots of fire? Yeah, yeah, it was the theme for Chariots of Fire, dun, 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 yeah. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. yeah, which like was my favorite song growing up. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, so like I, we had, there was just always music around Mm. growing up and I had these very well-known musicians in my family and, you know, for my grandmother's funeral, like the biggest band in the country played the funeral. Um, So I always had these experiences and my family had these experiences and these people, uh, multiple generations of people like this. So when I came home and I was like, dad, I'm really thinking about music school, you know, his first reaction was like. I didn't move 3,000 miles <laughs> for you to go and become a musician. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, like... You we could have done, done that. that. Right, you had all the things yeah. to do that, mm-hmm. and that avenue to do that in Nigeria very easily. Right. I, I very much believe that this is an opportunity for you to do, focus on computing, particularly since I think there's going to be a future in this computer stuff.
0: Boy, was he wrong.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: no, that's... that's yeah. I, wa- I love that. There's... Uh, last year, we had two uh, guests that we talked about, Melis Aydowan, who uh, started RUYA, um, and Anne-Marie Herrera and Luis Laya, and there were two episodes that um, that really featured the perspective of people, uh, of immigrant families heavily, and I really loved like getting that perspective. And one of the things we talked about, especially with Melis, was access and like what you know, because there's this idea, this American idea, that you do what you want and you follow your passion, and and for a lot of people in America, that's an, that's an idea they don't have access to.
1: Yeah. I mean, my parents weren't feeling that, do whatever you want, feel whatever you want. I mean, like, most yeah. people don't know this about immigrant families and kids. They beat the hell out of those kids. I mean, like, I mean, there was just no, I mean, there was no option. So, I mean, like, I had, I mean, I got my ass beat for practicing. Really? Yeah, I knew I was going to get, like, I mean, there were streaks in my life where it was going to be a spanking every time. Like, wow. yeah, an yeah, ass whooping yeah. to play. Like, if my, if my dad came home and heard me practicing the drums, it's going to be a problem. Yeah. But if I didn't play church, drums on church on Sunday, that was gonna be a problem. Like, it was just, this, I mean, it's this weird balance. Right. But, um, you know, like, obsessing and like making it all my time was just not something, I mean, to really put time into it was something that was costly for me. Right. And from that process, you learn to hold on to it. But, you know, like, immigrant yeah, if you fami- don't
0: care about it, it's gonna go away.
1: Yeah, immigrant families really like push an uh, ideal. And if you wanna do anything else from that or deviate from it, It comes at a cost, but what I was able to do was to also do something else. I just, I mean, I wasn't, I believed my father was correct, Mm -hmm. um, which is kind of something that's a little different. Um, I saw the wisdom in his words and Mm -hmm. just needed to find a way of being able to do both. Right. And it wasn't either or for you. You wanted, you wanted to do both. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. It's, and there's lots of there's lots of famous drummers who are in that same situation. The uh, I've gotten a chance to study with the uh, the drummer from the band Dream Theater. <laughs> seriously. Yeah, Mike Mangini. He is <laughs> one of the most interesting human beings. He is pure one thousand percent Boston. Everything that you can think about a Bostonian, that uh-huh. guy is all in. You know, like That's Tom funny. Brady, <laughs> like he is <laughs> all day. <laughs> Um but he was uh, a Fortran developer. He was an electrical engineer yeah, yeah. for like a large part of his career and um forayed into drumming. Um if yeah. you're really good at obsessing about things, right? You make a great engineer. You'll yeah. also make a great well, musician. It reminds
0: me of Tom Schultz from Boston who invented you know the solid state amplifier, yeah. and Brian May from Queen, who's a who's a n- nuclear physicist. You know, that there are these there are these guys who write, it's the same part of the brain, that same yeah. analytical creative part of the brain applied to a different space.
1: It, it's not even so much analytical or creative. It has nothing to do with that. It is, are you crazy enough to sit in a room and do, and hit a drum the same exact way for two hours Yeah. and not do anything else? Just sit and just like move your arm up and down yep. and that's it for the whole two hours with a beep. Right. <laughs> like, you know, yeah, a uh, thing that's just beeping at you and different rates. So when when you were a kid um and you
0: you were obsessing about this, were you in your room and you're playing along to somebody's records or were you sitting there doing doing and 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 really thinking about technique and roles and like yeah. how how were you at that age thinking about getting Good. What was it that you were following and chasing?
1: When I first started on the instrument, my I hated snare work, which is so hilarious now because it's the thing that I spend the most of my time doing and the thing I'm most passionate about. But, um, no, I played along to records. I um, My parents only allowed Christian and gospel music in the house, so... Uh, I would turn on the radio station really loud Uh from downstairs, and then I'd run upstairs and play along to the song. Um, Eventually, my parents then set me up with my own stereo system in my room, and then i just turn up and just play along, like just loud and just cranked and just go at it for hours. Uh, I studied with a drum teacher, Mm -hmm. and he... First, just kind of introduced me to James Brown. That was there you go. where it started. I spent two years start studying and learning every note from every James Brown song. Wow. Yeah. Or some, uh, it was in two years. Actually, it was a summer. We did that that first year uh, that I studied with him. W- who was the drummer on those records that you were. There were a bunch of them, uh, but Clyde Stubblefield and John Starks, John Javo Starks are the famous ones, but then there's also Clyde Parker, Mm -hmm. uh, not Clyde, is it uh, Melvin Parker, sorry, um, who's Maceo's brother. Okay. Uh, He's the one who actually got Maceo the gig. And then, uh, funny enough, uh, one of the drummers that I studied with was Art Gore. His uncle, uh, Edison Gore, was the drummer on Please, 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 Mm -hmm. and uh, the first sessions that he did at King. Right on. So there's a whole host of all of these right. drummers that uh, James Brown used that were really f- influential. You know, like Dee Felice, you know, from most people think Dee Felice and they think about the restaurant down right. in Covington. Yeah, yeah. But no, Dee Felice was one of, he was in that James Brown right. universe. Right on. Um, so there's all these drum. those were a lot of the drummers that he used, and those are the people who I more or less got turned on to early. And so obviously when you took this
0: seriously, you didn't just go into technique. You went into the history of it and to the names and to the to the, the guys and yeah. really getting deep into it. And, and somehow that intersects you coming to Cincinnati and studying at UC eventually results in a big part of your life right now, which is studying that King Records legacy and putting all of that out there. When did you become uh, – uh, as a drummer aware of that, you know, James Brown had recorded here and that a lot of that stuff really came from where you were living now?
1: Well, I knew the record label was in Cincinnati, or at least where they distributed from. Um, and, yeah, I had known about King from a really early age, my grandfather, who actually uh, just passed away a couple of days ago,
0: oh wow, I'm uh, sorry,
1: he uh, he was uh, in his eighties. So I mean, you know what happens, yeah. Um, but my grandfather had uh, some King Records. He was a James Brown fan. So he had some federal, it wasn't federal records, but it was whoever distributed federal records Mm -hmm. in Europe, I believe. He'd gotten them through Italy or something. Okay. Uh, I've recently gotten to hear the story from, uh, actually I got to hear the story from him and from my mom. And he was able to get the James Brown records before people were able to get it in Nigeria. So he was one of the first guys that had it. Okay. And when I was a kid, I ran into these records. So they were just around Mm -hmm. and was able to hear them. And so I was familiar with Federal. For some reason, it was not a name. It was just a name that I always had been aware of. And in high school, through my drum teacher, I became very familiar with Federal and King and the entire history and the recording history. Uh, Became familiar with uh, Bootsy through one of my uncles, for instance. Uh, I was talking about, oh, I'm so into funk, and like one of my uncles was like, "What do you know about funk?" You know, and like I, uh, yeah, do you know Bootsy's Rubber Band? And I'm like 16, like Bootsy, what's a Bootsy? Yeah, (laughs) and uh, yeah, and then got hip, but so I'd been familiar with this Cincinnati funk connection and the Cincinnati sound. Yeah. Uh, and the Cincinnati sound is kind of a horn sound. It's the actually, it's the horn arrangement, but most people don't realize that it's the Cincinnati sound. It's a uh, uh, trumpet, a uh, uh, trombone, and saxophone. Okay. That's the three horns that James Brown used. Yep. And so I'd been very familiar with this kind of things around Cincinnati. And so when I came here to music school, I thought that this would be really big here and part of like the musical experience and especially for somebody who was obsessed with funk at a young age i mean i really took funk too far like all the astro funks the weird funks Uh all the funks the because back then remember jamiroquai was also like hot so funk was going through this uh, resurgence at the time right and I really yeah. thought I was going to get this, like, deep funk education in Cincinnati. That's one of the reasons that I came here at right okay. um, its appeal. I had a good engineering school, a good music school, great music school. but and this, this funk, tradition, of funk, yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, it turned out not to be the case as far as Cincinnati being into funk as, from a music perspective, um, as much. And then times also changed, um, yeah. But there's this legacy here and the King stuff. So yeah. I started kind of digging into King. And as I got older, you know, I'd start digging into some other King artists like Hank Ballard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never really was into soul singers. I, as a drummer, I really like things with velocity, things yeah, yeah. with energy. So I yep. excited. So when I finally kind of came back to Little Willie John and Hank Ballard and trying to get these old soul singers, I kept finding myself really being drawn to those two particularly. And that was my foray into soul music. And mm-hmm. I mean, think about my your foray into soul music or the first people who defined mm-hmm. the sound of soul music, Hank Ballard and Lil Willie John. Yeah. And they were both King artists. And there just started to be this confluence mm-hmm. of my life kind of centralizing around King Records and, all of my music tastes and things going on in my life were really resonating around King. And at the time, uh, JP and I had just moved our studio from... We were in Camp uh, Camp Washington. JP is your business partner. Yeah, my best friend and my business partner. Okay. Um, and we'd moved our studio space to Norwood, and it was down the street from King. Yeah. And so we started looking and saying, "Okay, what if we try to come up with a framework?" Uh, so JP is also equally nerdy. We met in the first day of school in computer science. Okay. JP was a computer science student. He left because we were it's funny enough we were both kind of in the same place we were immigrant families grew up in immigrant families we grew up in um uh we shared a similar faith or the same faith Mm -hmm. and so really became fast friends like really close friends really really quickly Mm -hmm. uh i think i walked in class and I tried to be the professor or I started talking smack and JP called me out. <laughs> and then we just took right over the, the classroom of just like just smack talking each other for like the rest, rest of the term. And then the next term we took all of our classes together and... Right on um from then on yeah uh, we led to Afrosheen uh, but we start talking about Afrosheen these concepts very early on then so
0: Afrosheen is i want to uh, you know not not skip too far yeah. ahead Afrosheen is your production company
1: with JP and the name comes from so i am nigerian as i've mentioned uh, and i try to remind everybody as much as possible <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> It's important, you know. I'm not an African American, and like that's something that a lot of Americans need to be reminded that there's different flavors of black. So I'm constantly reminding people that I'm Yoruba, Uh, that I'm not uh, the type of black that you're familiar with, and it's important to me to not get that forgotten or ignored because Uh, it's a huge part of me. I have a funny ass name, like. That should give you
0: a clue. (laughs) (laughs) What does that mean to you? What does it mean to you to be distinguished as Nigerian as opposed to African-American?
1: Well, I mean, it's not so much distinguished, it's it's I am. Uh, African-Americans are a group of people, uh, an ethnic group of people and culture Mm -hmm. that formed from a pan-Western, West African group of people that... Or migrated to another country, and then they're, all of their cultures mixed right. with uh, Western culture and all of the Western African cultures all kind of come together yep. to create this very unique thing. Okay, um, I am Yoruba, uh, and more specifically, I'm Ikiti, um, which is the region. Or so my ethnic group are a combination of city states. Okay. Uh, very much, very similar to the Greeks, mm-hmm. um, and my city state is Aket. Okay, um, and uh, it's I'm very proud of that. You know, my father made me learn my family history going back for multiple generations, and would test me on it. I mean, I'm not kidding. Right on. Um, and I love it. I love Nigeria. I love the people. I love my family. I love being in Nigeria. Meeting yeah. other Nigerians um we have a very it's a very unique culture and it's also a very definite if you have an understanding of Nigerians and you have an understanding of Yoruba culture uh-huh. i make a lot more sense to you um, <laughs> and a lot of people have the anticipation of seeing this black guy and they expect an african american person and i'm not this is more all. about your heritage yeah no i mean like i don't my, my parents my father is a very proud Nigerian, and uh, you know, I mean, he moved, he got a scholarship to do his PhD at Cornell. <laughs> and after finishing his degree, the world was literally his oyster, and mm. every major corporation was trying to get a hold of him. And he moves back to go become a professor in the state system in Nigeria mm. with his young family. I mean, I was two or three at the time, okay. Um, So a very proud person about his country and believes that he should literally roll up his sleeves and at whatever cost to try to live to add value to his country. So I was raised from that perspective that your community is to be valued and you should be looking for ways to Mm. always add value to community no matter what the cost it is to you personally. We should all be working towards that and i mean he lived that by example i mean you leave an ivy league college i mean you're in the 80s six figures immediately and yeah. you're talking to go back to making a salary of the equivalent of like two to three thousand dollars a year right that's commitment yeah and, some deep pride in your yeah, culture right. and my father's commitment in that culture is something and then I mean, that's kind of a Yorubas are very, uh, hold that very dear. Even in slavery, uh, the Yoruba language was still spoken in the US up until the 1920s, uh, Mm. World War World War I, World War Two, mm-hmm. is pretty much the end of the language being spoken on continental U.S., and okay. it's still spoken in Brazil. It's where we get Santeria from. Okay, um, it's Yorubas are very difficult to remove the culture. I mean, we're talking about multiple generations, people who have no tie back to Nigeria or Yoruba land, still hold on to religions or hold on to the language or still hold on to the naming things. Wow. Um, so we're very innately into our culture, Because we're raised with this value system of commitment to your community. And, yeah, so I always like to make sure that people have an understanding that I am part of a certain community. Mm -hmm. And there's a value system within that community that I strongly, strongly, strongly believe in that drives me. Um, Which is why you'll see a lot of Nigerians always are kind of like me. They have side gigs. They have a normal day job. And they have and it's something else that they're also working on, thriving, and doing well in. Um, it's just kind of the way that we're wired culturally.
0: It's funny. I have a friend in Columbus who's Nigerian, and this is making me understand her yeah. a whole
1: a whole lot better.
0: Well, I interrupted you. You were talking about your relationship with, with JP and why
1: Afrosheen is, is named as it is. Yeah. Um, so it was a reflection of our culture. Um, JP is Chinese. Um he his family is Chinese, but um they're from Malaysia. Mm-hmm. and we wanted to find a way to represent our cultures, and particularly, we wanted to find a way to represent our mothers. We mm-hmm. um, both one thing we both share in common, particularly is that our mothers were the people who are the driving force of our ability to pursue our talents. Um, both of our fathers were engineers and hard-nosed engineers, wanting our children to become engineers. And JP bucked against the system and went and studied, um, went went to CCM mm-hmm. and left the left the computer science program. And I was always really jealous. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he got out of it. Yeah, and you know, I, his, I believe his mom backed him, um, and so we wanted to find, you know. Uh, Find a way of being able to represent our cultures and represent our mothers. So we, yeah, Afro Sheen. We batted out a lot of names to try to find ways of representing our cultures. And he was like, yeah, Afro. I was, I think I said something like, a- what about Afro China? And he was like, what about Afro Sheen? <laughs> I was like, no, that's stupid. So, <laughs>
0: <laughs> and here you are. Yeah. So
1: we like meet, like we were meeting with um, Saba, Auntie Saba, uh, Camille Saba Smith is a singer in town. Um, An amazing singer in town and we were meeting with her to kind of talk about if she'd be our vocalist for our projects Mm. um and kind of hold the role that she kind of holds for us right now which is she's our vocalist um our main vocalist and um she's like I said it, I just said it again. I was like, what about Afro-China? And she's like, what about Afro-Sheen? And like, JB just <laughs> glared at me and I was like, all right, fine, Afro-Sheen. Um, and yeah, and our logo is kind of this cool kind of, it's a uh, Chinese dragon with an African woman with some like big hoops. Um, right on. And just something to kind of show the strength, um, to represent kind of the strength of our mothers, of being... You know, these strong, fiercely independent women, Uh, you know, J.P.'s mom uh, owns a business where she teaches cooking. Mm -hmm. And not only does she does does it exceptionally well, I mean, she's exceptionally popular. And I believe they used to live in the Toledo area, and I believe she still teaches. They moved from Toledo years ago, and I believe she still teaches regularly in the Toledo area. It goes back up to... Yeah. um, Right on. So, I mean, just exceptionally talented. Like, my mom is a master. She has a master's in accountancy. She ran my parents' business for years, and they had a really big business. and. Um, just exceptionally talented women. And we really wanted to find a way of being able to show that strength awesome. uh, and that softness and that beauty. So, yeah. yeah, so Afrosheen kind of is representing everything that our mothers fought for us to be able to create. Wow. You know, like, we're in our day jobs, it's kind of everything that our fathers fought for us to yeah, create. Yeah, yeah. And Afrosheen is the embodiment of everything that our mothers made for us. That's you know? really beautiful. Yeah, it re- that's kind of why Afrosheen is such a passion for us. Yeah, yeah. So Afrosheen,
0: describe what Afrosheen does, because you guys dabble in a bunch of, not surprisingly, for you guys, <laughs> for you dabble a in a lot of different things. areas, yeah.
1: Um, yeah, so JP also has a, an exceptionally wide frequency of talents. Mm-hmm um like he is disgusting he plays piano well he plays guitar well he plays bass well he's a pretty good singer um i'm not letting him play the drums <laughs> <laughs> stay stay off my thing he in college was not that bad of a software developer he was good mm-hmm. um he's just really talented so um it's just a place where we just wanted to find basically it's me taking advantage of all of JP's skills and JP's taking advantage of all of my skills and then we try to make all of our projects come to life. We sit and really think I have passion projects and uh, kind of a roadmap that of things I'd like to do um, and he has a roadmap of things. We've been talking about this since Calc 1 Right. <laughs> so um, we have a lot of Things we like to say, things we like to do musically. Um, JP is also a photographer. Um, JP is the filmmaker, and I'm the one who's the filmmaker in training. And I guess six years into training or under JP, I'm not really in training as much. Um, but no, I mean, JP's. A filmmaker, he's the one who's filmmaking and sound and audio was really his skill set, where music and writing, and mm-hmm. a lot of that was my skill set. JP's also a writer. Um, and we have overlapping skills, and we just wanted to find a way of being able to do stuff yeah. with it and do stuff outside of our day jobs and stuff that we dreamt about in college. So when we became older, just kind of looking around and, like, why don't we... Do th- Like, who cares about the money? Who care? Like, we'll just do it, yeah. and we'll just see what happens. And so Afrosheen is just a way for us to use all of this cool gear we've been collecting. We're both gear crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, all this cool gear we've been collecting and buying over the years, and to do all the stuff that we talked about for the years, and just stop talking about it and do it. And just do it. And it sounds like even that theme of
0: rejecting narrow definitions and specialization, that even Afrosheen is just a place to do whatever you want to do, not to be a film production company or a music production company, but to be a whatever we want to do. Company.
1: Yeah, we want to be creators, and we want to be creators with purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, and because we have day jobs, we can focus first on creation rather and value of creation mm-hmm. rather than a monetary value of creation and we want, we want to do something for our community. So that's yeah. what the driving, it's, and a lot of people very early, all not very early, but still ask, what do you guys do? What does Afrosheen do? And people are like, oh, so people now kind of think that we make movies, but, no, I mean, there's always a video element to what we do because um, of JP's film skill uh, yeah. um, set. But there's also a musical aspect to everything we do because of, both of our musical skill sets. Um, and then there's also something that leverages our social network. Both, mm-hmm. uh, you know, JP and I spent a lot of time building social networks from being here for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And a combination of all of those things of pulling in our friends and pulling in their ideas and collaborating with um, new friends and other people around town. That's what the focus is more about. It's more about doing your dreams. Yeah. You know? It, how, as artists, as people, you know, like when you were 18 years old, you had dreams of doing something epic. And the funny thing is, is that we spend a lot of time trying to tell our 18-year-old selves that they didn't know what they were talking about. Right. Or your 18-year-old self was a badass and knew exactly <laughs> what the heck he was talking about. Yeah. Um, and we just were trying to bring out everybody's 18-year-old. You know, we're, You know, there's a point in time when you become an adult where the stuff that you really thought you'd do when you're young, you get jaded and you let that go. There's a certain point in time when you, if you don't go back and scratch that itch, I don't think you can be a healthy adult. Right. Um, and that's really what is about. It's about let's scratch the, all of the itches that we had when we were kids with full of vigor and energy and let's try to do it in our 30s in the middle of the night of like 3 o'clock in the morning and wake up for work at 6 o'clock in the morning and mm-hmm. get kids off to school and fed with breakfast and all these things. And let's show our community and our families what we're capable of and that dreaming is worth dreaming, Yeah, you know?
0: Well, let's talk a little bit in the time that we got left about about the latest dream because I don't want to not talk about your latest oh, project. Yeah. Uh, it, so we talked about, about King Records, your, your latest, and it's part of sort of a patchwork that's led up to this, but the Queen City Kings docuseries that you guys have been producing is the latest output mm-hmm. of this. Just talk a little bit about w- what that is and and obviously, you've, t- you've talked enough about where the passion for it comes from and some of the research, but uh, where all that stands.
1: Yeah, so there hasn't been a definitive film making of King Records. Mm-hmm. There have been a couple books, mm-hmm. great books. There's uh, one by John Hartley Fox. There's one by a local author, Randy McNutt. Um, why Why don't people, I, I don't want to
0: interrupt you, but like, why, why do people not know? So I moved here, you know, from out West 15 years ago. And yes, I'd heard of King, but I had no idea what it was. And moreover, I just didn't have any sense for what Cincinnati was. You have, even if you've never been there, you have a sense for what Memphis is. And you have a sense for what Detroit is. But... By and large, people don't have a sense of what Cincinnati is with all of this music, powerful music history. Why is that?
1: Yeah, well, in Memphis and in Detroit, all of the record labels stayed. They didn't get bought up and move out of town, for one. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot, the personalities—so record labels or independent record labels are very personality-driven. You know, Leonard Chess— yeah. was a personality, right. good Lord. Yeah, As Sam was Phillips. Sid Nathan. Yeah. Sam Phillips was a personality. Yeah. Barry Gordy, personality. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, Barry Gordy is still around and was still in Detroit. And, well, when they moved to Los Angeles, but was still around and mm-hmm. able to keep that torch around. In Cincinnati in 1968, Sid Nathan dies... Um, He's the founder of King, the founder of King Records, mm-hmm. and the president of King Records. Then, in 1970, they are bought. The company's bought and sold to uh, Starday Records. Starday Records is then, after that, immediately because Starday is in a similar situation where their uh, owner also passes away right after this purchase is made, and they fold also. And then. It's basically just picked apart Mm. by Lieber and Stoller. uh, Those are the guys who did the writings for uh, Sun and Elvis. They wrote all of Elvis' material and way more, you know, like Hound Dog and all those songs. Mm -hmm. Um, And, yeah, so then after that, so they take the publishing rights and then the mechanical recording goes to a guy who wants the Red Sovine collection. Mm-hmm. And the Red Sovine is this trucker country uh, artist. Mm-hmm. And that's the only interest that he had. He only wanted that part Just of the catalog. Just little slice. So the rest of the catalog that includes some um, secret, there's a bunch of them, secret James Brown recordings. Really? Yeah. Do they exist? Unreleased James Brown recordings that didn't get moved over to so after they split over all these rights, some of them didn't go I've been able to kind of track down and figure out the the James. There's some James Brown songs that were supposed to be sold to Polydor, this German company that Uh bought all that bought the James Brown's next contract went to. Yeah. Not everything got over. There's a couple songs in the paperwork that stayed in certain places with certain companies. And there's a bunch of King recordings that never got released. And King has all of them sitting. And there's zero desire to do anything. King with has them. them. So who's King now? King is owned by a company called Gusto, which is owned by, which is a subsidiary of, I believe, the Interna- International Music Group, I believe is the name of the company, which IMG. is based out of Nashville. Okay. Um, and it's just a small group. Um, that doesn't care about any of it. Um, I, you know, it's the owners, I I would imagine, and I think I've been uh, told enough by some of the King people uh, under anonymity that he is the type of, he is a very atypical type of person that would be into trucker country. Yeah. And that type of person isn't necessarily going to be into African-American music. I understand. And the You're African-American the tradition. Yeah. And thank you. That makes this a lot easier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and because of that, I, you know, he, you know, he's a Southerner with... Um, Just has no interest in putting out this No interest music. in putting out any of that yeah. and no interest in any of the other stuff. So because King... Of and the also no interest in selling it
0: to somebody who will.
1: Yeah, King is the beginning of, King captures the, King is really interesting because it captures the beginning of American music as we know it. It captures the transition from mountain music to bluegrass Mm -hmm. into country. Mm -hmm. And that whole entire move in that 15-year period of time, King has it because King was Nashville before Nashville. Wow. And when WLW shuts down live talent, Mm -hmm. they all move down to Nashville. And then Nashville starts hopping, but it was Cincinnati before. Yep. And WLW, the huge uh, radio AM station signal that's still operating in Cincinnati, but they, it was one of those original station the station. They yeah. had the most powerful radio station in the country yep. to the point that they actually the government made them just, uh, output at a lower level because um, yeah, you could hear their
0: signal, especially everywhere. at night when AM radio waves carried. You could, you they could were concerned
1: it about, across a, the Rockies. I mean, which is kind of crazy to us now, but they were concerned about a single group. Or a single company having that much broadcasting power over the country. Yeah, yeah. Um, Paul Crosley, uh, but so the so King, you know, so the energy the energy behind King and the company behind King hasn't had any interest in really. Pushing the stuff that King really did well. Yeah. They did the country stuff well, they did but they did a lot of other things exceptionally well. Was King unique as opposed to, to Exceptionally sun? unique because Sun is just first of all, Sun is short. Yeah. Because all the stuff that we're talking about is a five year period of time with Sun. Right. You know? Um and it's just one style of music. It's yeah. mainly but the King books. had the original country and bluegrass. The beginning of soul, yeah. first soul artists first soul recordings are King. Yeah. Um, that's Willie John Hank Ballard. You have Gospel. You know, Atlantic tried gospel, failed. Mm-hmm. Um, chess tried gospel. All of them tried gospel. None of them did it. None of them mm-hmm. pulled it off. King was the only one that pulled off black gospel music. Yeah. Um, when you, what else did they do? They did um, oh rockabilly, you know, they right. were kind of the early Rockabilly pioneers. You know, they were the first ones to take black music and move it to the white market and white music marketed towards um, whites and uh, sell them to the blacks. Yeah. These were kind of all new things that America wasn't doing before then. Yeah. And so a lot of the things that King really has are the risque blues, you know, Mm -hmm. like you know, my big 10-inch. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, right. You know, what is that song about? 10-inch record. <laughs> um You've got 60-Minute Man, you know. There's even, like— So much it, of that stuff
0: was stolen later by, you know, by the by the rock bands. By the rock groups, because, yeah. I mean, it's,
1: like, risque. Zeppelin because and, Aerosmith and All these white kids are secretly listening to this yeah, stuff right. and, like, going— And, like, you know, making their parents go crazy. You have— King did I mean King was a pioneer you know they were also releasing like gay music which wow. I guess is that I I get for lack of a better way of describing it there was an artist by the name of Ruth Wallace and she was a king artist but then she would do these blue records what were called blue uh-huh. comedy records and they would talk about subjects of homosexuality and she's this like a person that if uh Better distribution had gotten her way. She would be a gay civil rights icon in a heartbeat because when you listen to these songs, they're funny. But they really contextualize homosexuality in the fifties and sixties in a way that like is completely not okay and very modern yeah. for us. Is this all Sid Nathan? Is it his is it his genius to recognize that it's good or is it his just like Well he was willing to distribute anything, okay. you know, so he wouldn't put it under his label. So she created her own label and right. he would press the records and then distribute the records for her. Huh. Um, But then, like, her regular stuff, she would do under King. Right, right. But, you know, King has all of this stuff, and that is of no interest to this southern cat. Yeah. And, you know, he's old. He's an old country boy, and Just he so, yeah. sells his Red Sovine records in country stops and, and truck stops, and that's his business plan for it. He has other things. He's yeah. an entrepreneur. He has other things. That he does, the King stuff, might as well be screwdrivers, is I believe a quote. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So he um, has, so at some point in time when, and the other thing he refuses to sell, uh, the minute that somebody is interested in it, it's kind of some people get that, like, you want this glass of water? Well, Mm -hmm. it's now a million dollars. The minute somebody's interested in it, they are more interested in something that they weren't interested in yeah. before. So, yeah, that's kind of the legacy of King. And then there wasn't any torchbearer in Cincinnati to keep the flame going. Mm-hmm. Uh, the building was sold. It. They tried to make it a recording studio. I think at some point in time, UDF owned it. It seems like every
0: five years, I hear that some some rumors are going around that somebody's going to do something about it. Yeah. Mayor Cranley, before he was elected, said it was going to be... A platform, a part, of, a part of his mission to get it turned into a, a protected historical site, which hasn't happened.
1: Yeah, there was a couple problems going back to the King days, real estate problems. So when Sid Nathan built the recording studio, because mm-hmm. it was an ice house. It was the Avondale Ice House mm-hmm. originally, mm-hmm. Uh, going back to the 1800s. When he got the building, it was a wreck. I mean, the wreck that it is now is the wreck that it was when Sid Nathan got it. So they had to rehab the building. And it's been rehabbed several times. He built the studio as a concrete Mm add-on because he wasn't allowed to record anywhere in town anymore because, for lack of a better term, he was, well, they were recording downtown, or they were recording on the west side at first at... um, Herzog's, Earl Herzog's, Bucky Herzog's place, which uh, he then has a studio on 801 Race, which is where the city beat is. Yeah, Herzog Music. Herzog Music now. Yep. Um, And he. he gets kicked out of there because he th- Herzog believes that Sid Nathan's a raving lunatic. Because he just, he stops, Sid would, like, stop if he didn't like something. What's going on? Like, I order you sleeping. <laughs> He'd, like, cuss people out. And uh, that got old, so he wasn't allowed to go there anymore. Okay. So then he has to build this a concrete addition, and he didn't get the lease to it. All right. So somebody else owned the land. So this is why... Dynamic Industries owned the studio portion, and then the rest of it was owned by a company or is currently owned by a company who actually uses it. Right. The rest of the King Records building.
0: It's not, if you, if you, we'll put some pictures up. Uh, it's not a pretty place. You know, yeah, it's a
1: work in progress. I mean, be careful. <laughs> no, I'm here. I mean,
0: <laughs> no, but I mean, even even in the best of circumstances, and studios don't need to be beautiful. Right. But it's a but it's a red brick concrete building. building over in Evanston that now is just graffiti covered with a with a you know a a brass plaque out front. That's that, the only way that you would know that this is the birth of so much American music.
1: Yeah, it's on 71. If you're coming on 71, it's. Um, Right by the one of the bridges right it's before the or after Montgomery, the main exit. exit. Yeah, yeah, exit four and, over by Xavier. Yeah. Yeah. And it's yeah, just right there. In fact, it's the funny thing is one day, uh Kayla Waldron, who is the producer on Queen City Kings, mm-hmm. um, she uh and I were driving back from a meeting with JP and she was driving in her car. And her this was last winter, like a year ago, like around like a week from now. Her wheel comes flying off when we're driving on 71. And it makes this terrible sound, and we're able to get off to the side of the road, and it's like negative. It's one of those days last winter that was like negative four degrees. Uh-huh. And her wheel just takes off like a oh. quarter of a mile down the way. So, like, first of all, I start laughing hilariously, and she's like in tears. She's like, <laughs> And I just point, like, right directly to my right.
0: You stopped right in front
1: of it? Right in front of King Records. And the wheel took off and, like, humped over the fence or, like, part of the fence and, like, right directly into, like, in front of King Records. And uh, it was just kind of, like, this thing of King just kind of that building being a focus of our lives. But, no, it's kind of a rough-looking building, and it kind of looks like a Scooby-Doo ghost town when you, like, show up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And from what
0: I understand, the inside just trashed, no vestiges of, yeah. of the original. Yeah, the city, city is
1: working on it, so they did some construction work in September, where okay. they did some, or October rather, they did some stabilization work. All right, um, they're working on a new roof. Uh, they had a request. Does
0: the city own it now?
1: The city, yes. Through them, okay. well, they threatened eminent domain to oh. the company that owned the Dynamic Industries, and was able to come to an agreement by a land swap. Great, which I'm. Um, which I'm really glad, yeah, um, yeah. and I think is a That's win-win for everyone. Yeah. But it's amazing because you know the Starday building, which is in um, Tennessee, I believe, got torn down last year. Oh. Um, a lot of these old studio buildings are getting yeah. torn down, and it's really amazing. To see Mayor Cranley be committed, you know, Good. be committed Good. to it, that he's willing to literally put it on the table. Good for him. Um, like, we're getting this building, or we're awesome. going to use every tool that the city yeah, has. Man, I mean, if Cincinnati politicians don't usually do that. Type no, of stuff. and if Cincinnati doesn't protect that part of its legacy, like
0: there are a few other, you know, monuments that we have that are more important to the contribution Cincinnati's mean, made.
1: Think about it for a second the room where the first soul records. Yeah. Like the beginning of a style of music was there. Funk, like when people were crazy, you know what, we're just going to play a repeating two-bar pattern. (laughs) Like that's not music. Like, I mean, if I can explain that from a musical perspective, it's Uh like one, two, three, four, two, two, three, four. It's not a song, (laughs) you know? That's Oh, but it is. But that's what James Brown invented in a room in Evanston that you drive by in traffic every day. Day going to work. Crazy. You know, and you, you have bluegrass, rockabilly, the creation of rockabilly is a style of music. Yeah. Uh, you, and you drive by it every day, and it's on this dead it's end street there. right there in yeah. a black neighborhood in Cincinnati. Yeah. I mean, come on, Cincinnati. Uh, so, like, seeing Mayor Cranley uh, understanding the value, and I, that uh, value, I believe, was brought to him by uh, Elliot Ruther. Uh, um, mm-hmm. Uh, who's been one of the flame bearers, who kind of picked up the flame in the 90s. Um, And another guy, uh, Brian Powers, who Mm -hmm. uh, picked up, he works at the library. Um, And then you've got to have like Darren Blaze, who's the one who is the actual only person who made Cincinnati care about this when nobody was caring about this in the 80s. Um, mm-hmm. Nobody wants to talk about any of this. I mean, we're even talking about like Randy McNutt, who's like the super nerd. Darren's been talking about this forever. Yeah, bearing the torch. Yeah, Darren Blaze, uh, who is the proprietor of um, Shake It Records yep. here in Northside. Him and his brother own Shake It Records. Great record shop. Great oh, one person. of the best in the country. Absolutely, yeah. great person. Deep in musical knowledge. Yeah, and he's the one who's been keeping this flame alive. You know, right also on. like uh, Chuck from Wussy. You know. Uh-huh. And we've got, there's been some people who have been keeping it alive, but then to see like, you know, you, you look at these guys, these are, and I'm not trying to be rude, but these are grungy looking dudes, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, you hang out with like Chuck Cleaver, like the, fr- you walk up to him and not knowing that he's like one of the nicest human beings on earth, you, he seems like a person who'd beat you up, you know? Yeah. And like, Darren looks like an angry curmudgeon, like when you like, just, if you don't know him, he's... One of the kindest these are the kindest people uh, yeah. I've known. But And doing good work and doing good work doing over. Doing really good work a long period of time yeah. and getting they're not the type of people that politicians pay attention right. to. Right. So the fact that this can happen in Cincinnati is one of the most fascinating and amazing and beautiful things I love about the city. Yeah. Because this can happen. This isn't going to happen in like any other town. Memphis is because by the nature of Elvis, yeah, that they held on and they barely held on to, Mem- to yeah. that. I mean, the reason why Elvis is a thing is mainly because of his wife, you know, his ex wife really, right, keeping that flame alive because it was not cool to be into M- Elvis in the 80s. Let's get real, right, right, you know? right? No, it was too close to the memory of 70s Elvis, exactly. Yeah, you know? right? Like nobody was feeling all that. So, you, had, you have these torchbearers in town that's been keeping the flame alive enough. Mm -hmm. And now it's time to really stoke the fire in a big way. And that's something that JP and I really wanted to be a part of. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, there's this resurgence going on. It's kind of, we started working on this project now, four years ago. Mm -hmm. And since then, there's just been this resurgence of a lot of people also kind of picking up, you know. Uh, I kind of put a call out to a lot of some of my artist friends and talk about let's do James Brown jam sessions. Let's mm-hmm. do uh, King records, this King records, that, and there's been, yeah, all kinds of events, you know, like there was um, a fundraiser that they did a jam with Philip Paul a couple yeah. weeks ago. So um, you, so you put together just a
0: little bit of the timeline and we probably need to, to, Give these get guys back their of, space yeah. in a second. But but I want to do this justice. You started, you put together a series of concerts. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you put a band together to play this music. Did you know at that point that it was going to be a film, or were you just tr- sort of trying to get them, the music together? So I had
1: planned on making a concert film of King Records music. Okay. And so we got... so we. Got a bunch of ha- headphones mm-hmm. and we wanted to bring in an audience so they can feel the same experience of being in a record studio. Right. So we turned large spaces, the Lodge, the Contemporary Arts Center into mm-hmm. recording studios. Right. And we're fortunate enough to get some of the best musicians in the world. We had this cat, JD Allen, is like one of the freaking best saxophonists in the world. Downbeat Magazine, I think he was, like, number four last year. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about ahead of, like, Wayne Shorter and, like, Joe Lovano and some people who are, like, yeah. legends in You've music. You had some
0: huge names. Were these people coming because they know about King and because they— uh,
1: Fortunately, uh, they lived in Cincinnati. They have people who I played with mm-hmm. um, in the course of my career. Uh, JD was living in town at the time. He's now back in New York, um, okay. being a huge name in New York again. Um, but you just had, yeah. I know it wasn't part of the concerts, but you just had Christian, Christian McBride. Yeah, Christian McBride. Uh, he was in town for a concert, and actually he was also in town doing some work with Bootsy. Okay. Um, and yeah, I was able to get some help out with, uh, yeah, reaching out and talking to him. Yeah, we wanted the other thing we went out and tried to also. So, we did the concert series and wanted to kind of recreate the King experience. Yeah, right. And then after that, we started looking at our film and the mixes weren't quite done. And I tried to do some mixes and we were, we actually thought that we didn't have something compelling. We didn't Mm -hmm. think we had something good. Um, Because we also had like 15 cameras. So, trying to be able to determine what we had. It was just impossible. Make choices out of that much footage. Yeah. We yeah. just couldn't tell what the quality of what we had. So we wanted to make sure that people understood the storytelling aspect. So oh, cool. immediately we began collecting stories. Mm-hmm. We just thought we'd get a couple interviews and that'd be enough. And... Opened the floodgates. Yeah, it just became more and more, and we needed more storytelling and more heads and more voices. And, and you
0: went, from what I understand, as deep as you are like to go in everything that you do. Like you went to the rock and r- or to the to the uh, Hall of Fame.
1: Yeah, Terry Stewart from who's the president of the who was the president of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame until about like eight, two years ago, uh, spoke. Uh, we have this. I mean, that's like a shot that I'm super proud of because we have him overlooking the uh, river. Because uh-huh. the whole point of our uh, project is saying that the Ohio River river towns. Yeah. Created rock and roll. It's this river culture and the Midwest Mm -hmm. in particular, and like this kind of confluence between the South and the North and the East and the West. All of those cultures, kind of being in St. Louis and all these towns, right. are connected by the river. So having, talking about, um, you know, having the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and we did it over at the uh, 36th or 37th floor of the Scripps building. Awesome. And just overlooking the bridge and the river. Nice. It was just like, so we got to talk to him. We got to talk to, we are still interviewing Um and we're, our goal is to interview every major recording artist from Cincinnati. Right on. So I think on my list, we put up this huge list, and I think all I'm left to capture is Linford and Karen, mm-hmm. um, who just line. are super busy and our schedules have just not aligned well. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, but, you've had the guys from the National, you've had some of the Afghan wigs, yep. you've
0: had the, you know Bootsy. you've yep. had uh, like Erica the Heritage guys
1: and Heartless Bastards. Right.
0: Uh we'll see um so you yeah. d- you did a cut of the film um and it's it showed at the end of last year. Mm-hmm. Is that um is that sort of a volume 1 of what's going to be a multi-volume series? Yeah, well, we're
1: actually calling that 1.1 we wanted to give ourselves a deadline, uh, so we were fortunate to be able to partner with uh, the Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park, who mm-hmm. were amazing. And helped us build a relationship with the uh, theater group, mm-hmm. and we did it as part of their production of Cincinnati King. They had okay. commissioned this play, right. which tells the story of King. Um, It was just amazing. Uh, The music was amazing. The people in it were amazing. It was just really well. I mean, everything they do is well. They have Tonys. Yeah, yeah. Um, It was just well done. K.J. Sanchez is a beast of a writer, director. Her husband, uh, Richard, drummer, just... I mean, the guy used to teach at the Manhattan School of Music, so he's... Yeah, he's you know, no lightweight. He sucks. <laughs> 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 no, I mean, I mean, it was just absolutely excellent. I mean, absolutely excellent. Excellent humans. Excellent. I mean, it was great. And so we did this project with. Uh, they were able, we were part of. They were able to kind of tag along on their project cool. and. Uh, we wanted to share what we were working on so we've shown kind of the first episode Uh and it's not the complete first episode actually there's still a couple segments that we're going to add because because you're never done yeah and I would say we spent a lot JP and I spent a lot of time JP, me, and Sal Sal who was our editor a lot of time yelling at each other on this project Yeah, <laughs> about, there's so much. I mean, I found a lot of found footage yeah. and like performances of oh. King artists that I dug up, interviews from, I hit up like every, again, I take things too far. I hit up every person who had interviewed every King artist. Wow. And trying to find tapes, uh-huh. so I found a couple oh. of, and I a cup. One dude found a tape, and like taped it a big project, taped it back together, and then digitized it and yeah. sent it to me. He did an interview, like quarter inch reels or something, or no, just like a regular like cassette tape, oh. um, like re- yeah. reporter's tape. Yeah, and um, he did an interview with Henry Glover, uh-huh. and I was able to get an audio recording he did for Modern Drummer magazine, and got. Uh, Recording of it. And so we had all this stuff that I wanted to just, like, show yeah. this research project that I've yeah. been doing for the last several years. And none of it, not all of it came out. And we didn't feel that because there's some stuff that we would introduce and some concepts we'd introduce. Because we want to talk about race in Cincinnati. is mm-hmm. really the purpose of this project. Right on. And we wanted to introduce some things, but we weren't going to talk about James Brown and some of that because we wanted to kind of have a division of first talking about country and then talking about... Yeah, the different phases. The different phases because it's a long story. It covers a long span of time. Yeah. And because of that, so we had to kind of pull out stuff and or leave stuff out. So the next iteration, um, a lot of those things hopefully... With, if I get my way, which mm-hmm. I'm getting my freaking way, um, <laughs> no. a lot of those things will be there. So we just kind of showed the first 50 minutes, okay. uh, 52 minutes. So we did an episode length for the yep. first one. And then our next one will probably be another episode length. And then okay. we might have like a short, like an addendum of a 29-minute episode. Okay.
0: Is there? There's no way that, where that people can see it right now?
1: Not currently. Um, if you we, have a
0: preview of sorts at afrosheen.com.
1: Uh well, not really a preview. We just kind of have our trailer. Right, right. Um, yeah. we uh, well, yeah, we need to raise money. We have to buy licensing. So, oh yeah, that's kind of the thing that most people don't understand. The actual making a movie is hard. Uh. But doable, very yeah. doable. But securing um, all the rights and paying all the licenses for do, all this historical Doing the paperwork footage. and the bureaucratic stuff yeah. is, and that's a majority, which is surprising. I didn't realize that's a majority of my activities right is on. dealing with those things. Uh, the treatments and a lot of the ideas for shots and things like that, I actually did three years, four years ago. Yeah. Um, the rest of the several years is just more coordinating, like, yeah. stuff. And... So we need to. I think depending on how much music we want to do, and I'm s- below, we recorded forty two songs. Mm-hmm. I'm lowering my vision. It's really hard because we did a collaboration with the Comet Bluegrass All Stars. Uh-huh. Every song is great. Yeah, the collaborate. I mean, nobody ever goes into a situation. I was talking to our engineer over at the Lodge, Paul Brom, about this. Nobody makes a record and then all of them are keepers. Yeah. Right. You know, like, there's maybe one or two tracks that didn't work out, uh-huh. but they're actually still usable. But, like, they weren't, like, maybe, like— Yeah, you got to polish them up, but they're not what you want. Yeah, you know, right, but right. th- there's—every one of them is a keeper. Right. And on. so we have 42 keepers, and they want $1,000 a song yeah. for them. And, and that, believe it or not, is a very—that's, like, the friends and family price. Sure, sure. And then the James Brown. We've got to figure out the rights for James Brown, which I have no idea how that's going to go. Yeah. And so we have a lot of money to raise. You know, I think we're probably going to release a CD for all the songs, mm-hmm. and then for the visual. Hopefully, if we can raise. For just the licensing, $20,000 to $30,000 for the licensing. So um, I would imagine
0: you're in heavy fundraising. I I know you guys got a grant from the Hale Foundation for sort of the first first go of the work. Yeah, that helped us
1: put our concert series together and get everybody paid. Um, Mm -hmm. And then then the the rest of it we were doing out of pocket. Yeah. Um, And yeah, to kind of go further... yeah, to go further and be able to get access to people's time. Because when you're asking people to do things on the cheap or for free, yeah. uh, it's hard to really say, I need this by this date. Yep. Um, yep. So we've been fortunate enough to get, the, our, our team has been very, they've treated it as if they've been getting paid. Yeah. And we'd like to try to make sure that our team kind of gets treated correctly for their work. And again, all of this around a day job. This isn't a full-time gig. Yeah. Um, But so if we're able to kind of do those things, we're looking to then go to film festivals, which is a whole other production. Um, And then from there, uh, we'll see what happens. You Mm -hmm. know, it's 1% of filmmakers go past that point. 1% of filmmakers even make it to the point of film festivals. So we're just... We made a movie for Cincinnati. Yeah. And we made a movie that we can show in Cincinnati and share with Cincinnatians. And that's really our focus. But you're making a movie for the history of American music. We are. um, But I don't care about anybody else. Like, I care about (laughs) Cincinnati knowing and understanding the story. Yeah. And if this is bootlegged, I don't want to say it. Like, I mean, I shouldn't say it. But if it's bootlegged in Cincinnati, mission accomplished, you know? Yeah. We're not doing that. Um, because we want to make sure that the rights holders get their due. Yeah, yeah. Um, But, you know, if it gets, only if this is just something that only Cincinnatians know about this documentary, Mm -hmm. I've done my job. Um, If it goes beyond that, that's great, you know. Since it... And after scene, we have a rule everything is, has to be done within the two seventy five beltway, mm-hmm. which so, is the ring road around Cincinnati. Ring road right around Cincinnati. so yep. we can't farm out like music right. and go buy like canned music from out of town yep uh, if we get canned music, we buy it from in town. If yep. we do a distribution process of like music, hmm. it has to be in town. everything gotcha. we do has to be inside Cincinnati awesome um so. That's kind of our focus, you know? It's this very—and yeah. it's kind of funny. It's this very Cincinnati thing yeah. Um, that we only yeah. really care about. You know, Grater's Ice Cream was in Cincinnati for hundreds of years before Oprah cared about it. Right. You know, because Grater's only cared about Cincinnati caring about it. So yeah, they only yeah. cared about being Cincinnati famous. Mm. And that's what we want this project to be, just well, to be something Cincinnatians care about.
0: I'm, I'm sure— th- People in Cincinnati do care about it, and I'm sure people outside of Cincinnati are going to going to care about it I, as well.
1: I hope. I hope we can raise money to be able to share it, and once we do that, then, well, yeah, somebody's we'll listening there. to
0: this and wants to help uh, somehow see this project completion. Get in touch with the distiller, and we'll put them directly in touch with you. But
1: yeah, and I will, you know, name my. Firstborn goat after you or something. Yeah, I already have firstborn children, so like, I can't name them after you. It's I'm gotta sorry. Got to be subsequent. It's maybe a renaming, but I suspect that. Yeah, your children are not going to be very happy when you, I have you a tell them. With tell them what their new names. Yeah, are. I don't think he'd be into that. He's, you know, a very strong-minded boy. He's just not. <laughs>
0: <laughs> really, your son yeah. strong-minded.
1: Yeah, he is. Yeah, and my daughter is a woman, <laughs> like already. Uh, yeah, I've enjoyed this so much, and
0: we need to give these guys their table Absolutely. back and let them open for
1: lunch. But thank, thank you, you for spending the time us. Thank there. you really for having it. me. I hope yeah. this is a conversation worth listening or editing or you uh, know, I, people listening to. And It's been great. I wish we could take three or four hours to go go into it, but uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks yeah, so much. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time.
0: This episode of The Distiller was recorded live at The Littlefield, a quaint art lined craft cocktail bourbon and beer bar located at 3934 Spring Grove Avenue in Northside, Cincinnati. Thanks to Drew, Joe, and the whole staff of The Littlefield for taking such good care of us. You can see photos of our time there and find links to The Littlefield's website and social media pages on our website at TheDistillerPodcast.com. And if you do stop by The Littlefield, which you definitely should, Please be sure to tell them thanks for hosting The Distiller. Big thanks to Yemi Oyederan for hanging out with us and sharing his amazing story. Yemi's currently working on the final edits for episode one of the Queen City Kings documentary series. You can see a trailer at their website and follow their progress on their Facebook pages, but you can also visit the DistillerPodcast.com where we have links to all their online properties and a couple of previews of the film you can watch right there. It is so good. And also, on the off chance that you're looking for a chance to invest in amazing independent filmmaking, Yemi and J.P. are currently working on grant writing and institutional funding to help them get to the next phase of the project. And as he mentioned, just the rights and the licenses alone for this music are a small fortune. So if you're interested in helping them tell this amazing story of American music history, get in touch with us at The Distiller. You can email us through the website on our contact page, and we'd be very happy to put you in touch directly with Yemi and J.P. The Distiller is produced, recorded, and hosted by me, Brandon Dawson. Our show is mixed and edited by Justin Golden. Our logo was designed by Scott Ryan, and our videos are by Mike Helm of Minute Moments Pictures. You can find The Distiller wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can listen and download every episode of The Distiller, and find information including links, photos of the guests, and a map of all of our show locations at thedistillerpodcast.com. If you like what we're doing, please do spread the word, follow and share our posts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I should say here, we recently started a Patreon page where you can help us cover some of the expenses that go into creating the distiller. If you're interested, go to the distillerpodcast.com and click on the become a patron button for more information. Everything you need to know is right there. And of course, we'd love it if you'd rate and review the distiller, wherever you listen that helps other people find out about the show. Don't forget. You can always email us at mail at the distillerpodcast.com to tell us who you think should be on the show to talk about their search for meaningful work or where you think we should record the next show. So please drop us a line, whether it's by email on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, We always love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Brandon Dawson, and thanks for listening to The Distiller. Bye-bye.